What's up, world? We're back. Another podcast. Every time I do one of these podcasts, it'll be that I say I'm gonna stop fucking taking so long to do another podcast. And this time, like the last time, it this actually this time was longer than the last time. The last time it took me a week and a half. This one's been almost two weeks. But unlike the last time that took me so long to record a podcast, this one is taking me longer because honestly, I've been I've been waiting for you. I didn't want to fucking I don't want to talk about anything else. I got so much shit that I'm talking about right now to begin with and that I'm trying to catch up and I don't want to keep adding on to that. So I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to wait for Elvira to come. And now that you're finally here, I am so excited. So with that said, please, if you'd be so kind to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes. Hi, everyone. And Isaac, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I would like to start by talking about my positionality. So who I am, you know, my so positionality is something we learned in a class that we took at UTEP in our doctorate program. And we learned it as, you know, who are you? What, what are your positions in society? Right. So we have many different positions and some people are comfortable talking about their positions. Some aren't. Some are willing to reveal things about themselves, others aren't. So I'm gonna just share a couple of my positionalities so that you all can understand where I'm coming from. So first and foremost, I'd like to say I'm not a philosophy instructor. Um, in fact, I teach film and video production courses. I teach Chicano cinema, I teach Chicano theater. My background is in film. Um, I am, was born in El Paso, grew up in Chaparral, New Mexico. I'm Chicana, um, I'm an artist, I'm a comic book writer, um, what else, I'm American, um, I've lived in Chicago, I've lived in Harlem, and, and now I'm here in El Paso, and I'm working on a doctorate degree in rhetoric and composition, so that's my background. Isaac taught me everything I know about philosophy. That is not true. And, uh, and I question everything that he teaches me. That is a good thing. Um, I am so excited, Elvira, seriously, I'm so excited for this podcast, not just because I have a chance to sit here and talk to you, but because I fucking get a chance to show to my, the friends that I do have that consistently listen to this, just how dope of a person you truly are. Um, there's a lot of things that Elvira said right now that I'm going to just be touching upon throughout the course of this podcast. Um, and I'm going to start first and foremost by the introduction that she, we met, uh, well, actually I was going to say we met in our PhD program, but that's not true. We actually met through a mutual colleague of ours who was one of my former teachers, professors at EPCC. And she introduced me to Elvira about two or three months before we realized that we were in the same doctoral program together. So yeah, Elvira and I are not only uh, professors at El Paso Community, but again, like the Manuela situation, Elvira is an actual fucking real professor. She is was just awarded tenured. So congratulations, Elvira, again. Thank you. Although the tenure doesn't set in until August, she is going to be a tenured professor at El Paso Community College. So she's definitely my colleague there. But she's also a colleague in our doctoral program in the rhetoric and writing department, right? And the talk of she's uh, speaking of which, of positionalities, this, she's absolutely right. This is where we learned our positionalities. And it's funny because we've actually been talking for about two hours already before this podcast even started. And this is the one thing that she's been uh, saying that she wants to start with her positionality, which is a huge thing for her. And rightfully so. Um, it actually, <laughs> in, in, in doing so, she mentioned one of the positionalities that I actually wanted to keep secret until the very end. And that is that although she was born in El Paso, she was actually raised in Chaparral, New Mexico. The hood. The hood hood. And the that hood, is so hood. important to me, Elvira. And this is, what I, this is the secret that I was telling you about. 
because I actually started working at Doña Ana Community College recently. And this semester is my second semester. And I am teaching high school students at Chaparral campus of no Doña way. Ana Community College. Nice. So um, the reason that's, that's the secret, that's the secret as to what it's one of the secrets as to why I was so excited to have you here is because I get to show you off to my high school students and let them know, hey, I've been telling you all semester long that just because you're from the hood, the Chaparral, New Mexico does not mean that you are going to be relegated to this. And I have fucking firsthand experience with that. Not because I personally grew up in Chaparral because I know somebody who did and who transcended it. So I was hoping if you could just get a little bit into your, your background, not too deep into it, but just your story of how you came from a young lady in Chaparral, New Mexico, and then you, you fucking went around the world after that. Yes. Um, well, I first I have to say, I, you know, I was always a storyteller. And so that's something that's been constant in my life. I love telling stories. Um, and my mom was the one that nurtured that. Like she let me go on and on telling my stories. And you have a daughter, so I'm sure you understand what it's like to have a young kid who just she hates hearing my stories. <laughs> and so, because of that encouragement, that stayed with me. And um, I went to Chaparral Elementary School. And when I was growing up in Chaparral, there was no junior high or high school or Danya Ana Community College, um, and there was no prison. We have a prison there now, but we don't have a public library. Um, and so I had to cross the mountain to go to Gadsden Junior High and then Gadsden High School. And so every day we crossed the Franklin Mountains. It took us 60 minutes on the bus um, to get to school. Um, 60, 60. 60 minutes Easy. on the bus. Yes. And so at the time, the gap, the, the speed limit was like 60. And now you go and it's, I think, 75 or something. They like raised the speed limit. Um, and I had to take the bus. So it was super slow. And you had to stop and pick up all the other kids. Um, and so throughout uh, elementary, junior high, and high school, I was always involved in the school newspaper. Okay, I was a nerd. I'm, I'm a journalism nerd. Um, I was interested in cameras. I've always been interested in, in visual communication. And it wasn't until high school that um, a counselor, a guidance counselor, pulled me into her office and said, uh, you need to go to college. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Um, because I didn't, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, I have six older sisters, four brothers, and and my first response was, there's no way my family can afford college. So so stop even talking to me about that because that's not going to happen. And she said, well, don't worry, like I will help you with that. So I took this guidance counselor, Maria Dominguez, to, Shout out to Maria Dominguez. yes, wherever she is, she's the one who told me how to fill out a college application. She's the one who told me how to fill out financial aid. And, um, and then I had some neighbors who helped me write my essays. And, and so basically it took a community to send me to college and I got a scholarship to go to the university of Minnesota. So I went to Minnesota across the country. I had no idea where I was going. It was, we didn't have internet like we do today. So I, couldn't do my own research. I guess I could have gone to the library and read a book, right? But that's just not what we did at Gadsden High School. Um, and so then I went to Minnesota, loved learning. I had a first rough semester. I wanted to quit and I wanted to come home. Uh, but my Chicano studies professors, they were like, no, we're not going to let you quit. Like, you need to stay. In fact, you need to go for a PhD. And I'm like, what? Like, I haven't even finished my first semester of a bachelor's and you want me to go for a PhD. But it was a seed that they planted that just stayed in my head. 
Um, and so then after my bachelor's, I thought I wanted to be a journalist and work in television news. And I did. I worked at CBS in Minnesota. And I learned that I hated it. Like, I didn't like the hierarchy of the newsroom. Um, I looked around and just saw that there were gatekeepers and that it was going to take me many, many years to work my way up. And I said, I don't think I want to waste my life like that. So I'm just going to go for a master's, right? Listen to my Chicano studies professors who said, you know, go for higher education. So I wanted to marry my interests, which was creative writing, working with cameras. And so I applied to film school. Um, but I knew I didn't want to go to the West Coast. I'm like, I don't want to go to California and get eaten up by the industry. I was just like, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm, I, I want to learn how to write and tell powerful stories. So I did my research and I found that Columbia University was the number one school in narrative storytelling. So I said, that's where I want to go. I want to go to Columbia, which is which in is in New York City, which is in Harlem, but they call it Morningside Heights. Um, so it's like the nice side of Harlem, I guess. I think Harlem is beautiful. It's nice everywhere in Harlem. And I'm so grateful for my, I always tell people I got two educations in New York. I got one from Columbia and then I got one from Harlem. <laughs> you know, that's where I got my real education. Um, so anyway, I, I got accepted to Columbia and went. And so that's where I learned filmmaking. I had amazing professors. My mentor was uh, Jamal Joseph, uh, you know, Black Panther, did time in prison, got his bachelor's while he was in prison, got a master's while he was in prison, came out and then ended up teaching at Columbia. And he was my mentor and connected me to the community of Harlem. And so that was just amazing, like being exposed to a different culture, of course, different from Chaparral. You know, I was meeting so many different people, learning so many things, just sort of soaking everything up. And then now I'm back in El Paso because I miss my family and I miss my community. I miss warm weather and um, and I wanted to work on a doctorate degree. And so I picked UTEP. It's one of the most affordable doctorate degree programs. And uh, and I found rhetoric and composition and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So rhetoric is the art of communication. And composition is how we compose messages. And traditionally, uh, the Eurocentric ideology will teach you that composition is alphabetic, right? But we communicate in many other ways, such as our ancestors, or if you look at our indigenous past, uh, we communicated through, through pictures, through images. And so I'm sort of going back to that. I'm like, that's how I communicate. That's what's natural to me. And so that's what I'm studying. And uh, I, so I'm studying how to communicate, how to argue, how to uh, build bridges between people. Um, and I'm trying to do it through a visual language. And so that that's why I'm here. I mean, that's just one uh, that uh, honestly, as spectacular as all that narrative was, I'm telling you straight up, motherfuckers, that is still that is still Elvira, the cliff notes version of all the great things that you like, I'm not just blowing you up right now. I'm not glowing you up right now because we're on the fucking podcast. This is real shit. Uh, Elvira, I mean, she left out a whole chapter of her life, for instance, when she lived in Chicago oh, yes. and all the things that she did when she was living in <clears throat> Chicago. Elvira has left out the great things that she's done in the film, in the film industry in general. For those of you motherfuckers who've gone to the Alamo Draft House here in El Paso, Elvira has a brick in that shit for her. Okay? She is, she is deeply connected into the visual culture of El Paso. And there's one thing that you said specifically 
uh, that really resonates with me. And it's the idea that prior to this, uh, you know, European colonization of Turtle Island, I don't even refer to it as the Americas anymore. Y'all motherfuckers know that Turtle Island, right? Um, that we did, we did communicate in through, through, through pictographs. And to hear you make the connection with your current studies now to our ancestral ways of communicating, it's just, it's music to my ears. It's music to my heart. It just, it brings so much light to my soul because obviously indigenization is something that I am very deeply passionate about. And to hear that now we have a tenured professor in August, but <laughs> I'm going to celebrate and say now that's going to be, you know, one of the first, I'm assuming, I don't know them all, so I can, I know this one for sure, that is going to be taking an indigenous perspective at a college, the El Paso Community College, that, you know, traditionally serves people from this ancestral, you know, lineage in the ways of their, you know, traditional ways of communicating with one another, namely through pictographs. I mean, I cannot explain to you how happy that makes me here, but not as happy as it makes me hear just you speak in general, because, okay, circling back a little bit, you know, to our initial meeting point, when I met Elvira, she was a film student. She had never taken anything closely related to philosophy, let alone rhetoric. She jumped into a complete different field that she was not familiar with, and she immersed herself. And from the moment that I met her until this conversation that we're having now, it's just night and day how vast her knowledge has come in that particular field. So with that in mind, I was hoping you could explain to me a little bit as to your experience with going from something that you're completely un unversed in and, you know, immersing yourself and becoming, as I would want to say, maybe, you know, that you're just starting, but you're already so accomplished in the rhetoric field as well. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that too. Thank you, Isaac. I really appreciate that. It's, and I appreciate it. And I want to take the time to appreciate that and to say thank you because we need support. Like we need to support each other. And, and so I really am grateful for, for you and for your words and, and for you being a witness to my testimony because <laughs> not everybody gets to witness that. Um, and so, you know, what I do believe is that anybody can change if they want to. Uh, we can all grow, we can all learn. And, and I heard you say something in one of your previous gritos that, um, you know, it's up to you to educate yourself, right? Yeah. Like, like, yes, we're brought up in a system, a traditional system, a standard way of teaching uh, through our K through 12, and we don't always have a choice of how we get taught. But as an adult, you can change that. Like, and, and kids actually now know, wait a second, they do have an option because they have the internet and they have phones. And so they can, you know, do their own research now. It wasn't as easy for us, right? But, but they can do their own research now. So I, I truly believe that, and this is gonna sound cliche, but anything you set your mind to, you can, you can accomplish it. You just, you ha you just have to um, put yourself in the position to want to, discover new knowledge right and so so yes you're right like when i first started rhetoric and composition i remember my first day i'm like what am i doing like i have no idea where i'm at i don't have a degree in english my background is in film my assignments in film school were to make films um in fact we wrote like maybe two papers the whole time i was there and so i just had to sort of discipline myself and I had to study and read and do my homework just like any other student, you know, any of my other students. Um, in fact, 
Uh, one endeavor that I'm working on right now, I'm a comic book writer with my husband. He's an artist. Shout out to Ronnie Dukes. Yes, Ronnie Dukes, dukescomics.com. And we make comic books. And, and one thing that we did is we had the book translated to Japanese. And the reason for that is to make our work more accessible, but also to give us an opportunity to travel abroad and to connect with another culture. And if you're not aware of this, um, Japanese people love Chicano culture. I just became aware of this. Look actually. it up. I mean, there are so many YouTube videos of Japanese people embracing, respecting, and loving our culture, and they celebrate it. And, and I feel like we've been doing that here. We've been celebrating Japanese culture. Like I see people who wear samurai, you know, shirts and, and they love Bruce Lee and, and, you know, the tattoos, right? The, the Japanese writing tattoos and the Chinese writing. And shout out to all my homies in jujitsu. What's up? <laughs> yes. And so, and here I am wearing my, my Tokyo Scully cap because, uh, so what, what I'm doing is I'm learning Japanese. Um, konnichiwa, I should have started with that um, because I want to open myself to others. I want to learn about the world. I want to meet people from other places and, and spaces and, and hear their thinking. And one thing that I've learned is that people are the same everywhere you go. You know, we all have the same needs and wants, um, and, but it's just a matter of figuring out how do we communicate, how do we connect. Um, and so it was very important for me today to start with my positionality because I, I represent no one except myself. I, I, I'm speaking only for myself and my experience. I'm not speaking for all the people of Chaparral. I'm not speaking for all the Chicanas out there. Um, I'm, I'm not speaking for any of my employers. You know, I'm here representing myself and speaking for myself. And I will acknowledge what I know I will acknowledge that there are things that I don't know, and I'm always open and willing to learn new knowledge. You see what I mean? This is that fucking profound philosophical insight that just blows me away. This is someone, and the reason I'm I'm fucking uh, hampering on so on so much is because it's a, it's a lesson that I try to instill in my students as well. Man, fuck Plato. How about that? I'm just gonna be honest with it. Fuck Plato. Fuck Aristotle. Fuck any other philosopher that is not named Elvira Duke. <laughs> Fuck any other philosopher that is not named Isaac Senecetos yes. or any other person that is listening to this. Your you know grandparents. Why? You don't need Plato to tell you these deeply profound insights of knowledge because if you apply yourself in a, as I would, I, I would like to think, humble manner as Elvira has, you can come into this beautiful conclusion that, you know what? The only thing that I know is that I know nothing at all. And more importantly, I'm going to admit the fact that I know nothing at all because I'm a fallible human being prone to fucking so many mistakes. And the more I hold on to these false beliefs, the more detrimental they're going to become to my overall accumulation of knowledge. Right now, I, I, I have to, Elvita, I'm sorry, but I have to continue this glow up here. I, I, I'm going to go out. Of, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you speak as much as possible because. Your story is very inspirational and it's not a fucking fake inspirational like I often find myself struggling with and sometimes when I'm doing these little gritos of mine I'm like bitch what the fuck you're trying to sound like this fake this fake woke inspirational person it's not about that though right especially when I'm sitting in front of somebody for instance who has actually met for instance the president of the United States well he wasn't the president yet right I'm speaking here of Barack Obama okay um I'm telling you there's so much to her story and I'm just trying to find a way to expertly weave it into the point that I'm trying to get to, okay? But I, I, I'll qualify it like this. 
the first time that I started to really, truly appreciate just how unique Elvira was, was when we took a trip to Chicago, right? We went to Chicago. She was in a conference and she was presenting a paper. Now, I had mentioned to you previously that she had lived in Chicago and she can get into that if she herself would like to later. But uh, when we went there, I went with the assumption that because she had previously lived there, that she had connections, for instance, in Chicago. And I realized pretty soon that it wasn't not that she didn't have the connections so much as that she wasn't interested in perhaps rekindling them while we were there for whatever reason. Maybe my my interpretation is false. But what I'm trying to say is that she seemed more interested in making new connections and networking specifically. And I thought it was I was I was fucking floored, man. Realistically, like we were at a conference and she struck up a conversation with some people at the conference. And the next thing we knew we were at a fucking in an art loft somewhere in Ch I have no idea. I had no understand. I have no orientation to space. All I knew is that we were in Chicago at an art loft in, in a loft somewhere. Um, it was like a factory, a warehouse, if you recall, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a bunch of artists. And I, I just, I was flabbergasted because if that was just me personally, I would never have been able to get into that kind of situation. And it was only possible because of the way in which you approach not only I would want to just say not only the knowledge building process, but just life in general, man. And what I mean by that is obviously Elvira is very credentialed. She's a very credentialed person. And more importantly, she was the person at the conference talking. She was the person that people should come up to and be asking questions like, hey, what are you doing after this? What can I gain off of you? What can I possibly, what can I benefit from being in your presence, right? But she flipped it and made it so that the person who was actually at the conference themselves to hear her speak, she made them the center of attention, right? And because of that, it opened so many pathways for her. And well, for me, because I was there with her, right? And her husband as well, that we ended up at this party. And it was the most surreal. Exp I seriously, it, it was, uh, this is, I don't know if I told you this or not. Um, but when, when we were at that party, I literally felt like I was in some fucking Hollywood movie. The people <laughs> were dressed so cool. They were dressed so hip and they just all looked so cool. And I was like, wow, I'm fucking, I'm nowhere near as cool as these people. Right. And that was only possible because of the way that you approach that situation. And the reason I bring it up is because circling back to the indigenous uh, perspective, the indigenization, basically, and when it comes to philosophy, uh, indigenous philosophy specifically, there's two kinds of approaches to reality that we can take. The first of which is kind of like a warrior's mentality. And the warrior's mentality, I'm going to delve into it later as these podcast series progress. But for now, it simply summates by saying that it's somebody who approaches reality in a way that everything is an obstacle that must be overcome. I am a warrior and I must overcome this obstacle. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. The second way to approach reality, and I think this is where you're coming from, is more of a wanderer. This person who is it, the, the, the metaphor that I can give you is you're like a spider that is casting your net out to the universe. And you're just, you know, you're hitting your little webs, your little fiber, your little spider fibers and seeing where those vibrations lead you. And the vibrations that take you to a good place, you're going to follow those. And the ones that don't, you don't follow them, you know, whatever the case might be. So I was kind of hoping you could expand to me more. Not You don't need to, uh, uh, you know, relate necessarily how the, the metaphors uh, uh, fit your personal situation. But just if you could continue to extrapolate on how your being so open to the world has allowed you to do shit like fucking meet President Obama, man. Yes. Because, again, I am teaching <laughs> students, high school students right now, dual credit students in Chaparral, New Mexico, who... As far as they're concerned, the world ends in Chaparral, New Mexico. And fuck no, I'm telling you straight up, man. Like, there's so much out there in the world. And Elvira here is a fucking living example of that. 
and we went to hot do- we got hot dogs afterwards after that Those party hot dogs remember were dope and, as and, fuck. and we were like <laughs> in a hood and and they were the best hot dogs they were like the the best chicago hot dogs but anyway um and and it was because we made ourselves open right to to meeting other people and letting us sort of understand their life and experience their life um but one thing I will say is I, I think I, I'm going to give that credit to, to my dad because uh, my dad was someone who he, he grew up in El Paso, um, Mexican-American. He was a Marine in the 1950s, went to the Korean War. Um, and he, he, what he taught me as a kid is that you talk to everybody and you be kind to everybody. And my dad talked to anybody and, and he was a, a freelance construction worker. And so he did uh, jobs for very wealthy people and he did jobs for very poor people. He did not discriminate. Right. He said, you know, money does not discriminate. But <clears throat> the other thing that I learned about my dad is that he always carried um, cash in his pocket. And, and the reason why he did that is because he would always meet someone who was in need and he was always ready to just give away money. So one thing, he always had like a $20 bill and he would always give away this $20 bill and then he would always, it would always come back to him. He would find like a $20 bill in his coat or in his pocket or somewhere. Um, and so he just kind of taught me that like karma, right? Like, you know, you do good things, good things will happen to you. Um, and so I guess I got my sort of fearless, um, approach to just going up to people f- from him. Um, and everywhere where I've lived, I've, I've taken that with me. It's like, I've, um, I've reached out to people in every community that I've lived in. Um, and I would say that, um, because of that, I've learned, I've been able to witness how people experience their day-to-day life wherever I go. So wherever I go, I don't come sort of enforcing my culture or my beliefs on others. It's like, no, I'm entering a space and I'm going to accept um, the world that I'm seeing and I'm going to try to experience it and just um, let it move me. Um, And so at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We're all people. We all have feelings, you know, And, and so regardless of how intimidating it can be to meet someone like uh, Barack Obama, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he's just a human being like us. And, and he, um, so the way I met him was at a scholarship event. And uh, one of my friends, Danny was with me. And I said, Hey, Danny, we, you know, we have some time to kill, like, let's go to this reception. We were in this hotel where we were staying at, and there was a reception happening. And obviously, we weren't invited to the reception. But I said, let's just go check it out. Let's just go see what's happening. Um, so we walked in and we were dressed nice and we, we just kind of walked around. And then we saw this man that people were surrounding him and wanting to talk to him. And I said to Danny, I didn't know who he was. And I said, Danny, let's go talk to that guy. Like, let's just go see why people want to talk to him. Like, let's go see who he is. And so that's what we did. We went up to him. We introduced ourselves. I think you should always start with your positionality, right? Saying who you are. This, you know, we're from, I'm from El Paso, Texas. We're students at Columbia. 
And because we went up to him and just started telling him who we were, right? You would think we'd go up to him and be, and it's about him. But instead we were like, well, this is who we are. This is why we're coming up to you. And he said, oh, well, I went to Columbia too. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah. instantly we learned that we had a connection, right? And so we had this long conversation with Senate. He was the senator at, at the time of Illinois. And after our conversation, I said, do you mind if we take a picture with you? And he said, sure. And we just looked around and there was a, a woman standing there. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, can you take this picture of us? And she said, sure. Well, that woman was Michelle Obama. <laughs> and, and she was kind enough and she, she was just like, of course I'll take a picture of you guys. And so she took a picture of us and, and that was it. And we went about our day. You know, it's, the thing is I will talk to anybody who is willing to talk to me, you know, and, and, and I never approach people with um, any type of like request or like, I don't expect anything. I'm just here to meet who you are. We're all in this world together you know, how's it going for you? Like, you know, this is this is who I am. I, I always tell people what my positionality is so that they understand a little bit about where I'm coming from. But you can never let positionalities um, inform your assumptions about people. You know, just because I say I'm Chicana doesn't mean you should automatically have stereotypes about me or biases. Um, and so I try to sort of have that attitude when I meet people. It's like, okay, you may not look like me, but I'm sure I can learn something from you. You've lived a life, and I'm sure in your life you've learned lessons that I could probably learn from as well. And so I hope that answered your question. No, absolutely. It's answered it and then some, right? Um, one of the things that I've been trying to really, really uh, focus on when it comes not just to my you know just my personal life in general but obviously my personal life is going to influence whatever i do in academic in my academic and professional sphere is try to be more understanding of the inclusivity now this is very difficult for me not because i i don't fucking hate anybody like realistically i don't i don't like to think that i have any fucking in like intrinsic biases you know what i mean the postmodernist might fucking beg to differ but me personally i just think that i'm just chill right but one thing that i am is undoubtedly a fucking a misanthrope. I I've never really been drawn to people per se. In fact, I've always been kind of afraid of people for the most part. Um, but as I've grown a little bit older, I've tried to become more open, you know, uh, to the other people in this world. And one of the things I don't know if you remember this, but one time we were actually at at a bar here in El Paso a while back, and we made a video that was uh, highlighting our our differences, right? I, I the I'm gonna post the video. Uh, but the video was Please about. Don't. It was about uh, crumpling up a receipt, right? Uh, and you were talking about how we're so different because me, as soon as I get a receipt, I crumple that shit right up. And you had the receipt like in perfect, pristine uh, condition, like two or three beers in, right? Uh, and the reason I bring that anecdote up is because, like you said, we're all in this process of becoming, right? We're constantly, the opportunity to fucking, to, to, to change is always present. And it came a point, especially after that trip coming back from Chicago that I realized you can be that fucking misanthropic, you know, Eeyore type character that just walks around pissing and moaning all day. Or you can actually be open to other people and what they have to offer. And from that, I, from that trip, it was like a, almost like a domino effect that set into motion. I would like to say, I would like to think at least a little bit of where I am today and where that where I am today is this understanding that, dude, we are fucking all in this shit together. It really does not matter your ethnicity, your gender your sexual orientation, doesn't matter where you were born, your socioeconomic status, 
at the end of the day, we're all just fucking people, man. Right. So when it comes to this like fucking little project of hood philosophy that I'm that I'm trying to do is that that's that's one of the driving forces is understanding that yeah dude we're all just people and like you said it doesn't matter whether you're the senator of Illinois about to be the president of the United States or some student at Columbia you know at the end of the day we're just people and if we can make that simple connection it seems as though there's a, a it creates a space if you will where a lot of problems that we currently seem to be experiencing can be at least at least addressed right and at the end of the day we are both being trained to be redders and that does seem to be one of the primary goals is to find out how can we possibly overcome the divisions that are holding us back not just as individual people as the example that i gave you right now my example uh, personally for misanthropy would have been like everybody fucking sucks except for me how pious and fucking douchey of me right mm -hmm. but from a cultural perspective that oh, i can't talk to that person because they're fucking liberal i can't talk to that, per that person they're one of those fucking alt-right nazi people i can't talk to them they're conservative they're gay they're christian whatever right so i was hoping you could perhaps elaborate on what you think the role of open and honest communication can play and you know also in that respect addressing this underlying shared humanity that we have in overcoming much of the problems that we seem to be facing as a society and also on an individual level as well i'll speak from my positionality of being a student right and and in the doctoral program and what i'm trying to do for example with my dissertation um I think let's not give too much away because yes. listening ears and all that kind of right, stuff. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, there is a, a, a methodology or like a theory um, that's been out there for a while. Um, counter stories. Right. So it's this idea of uh, telling the stories that we normally don't hear. And so that's something that as an artist that I'm trying to do, I'm trying to tell stories that people don't normally hear. Like, like today you're introducing me as, as someone from Chaparral and, and there's not a lot of people from Chaparral who, who maybe have had my experience. Um, and I'm sure they are not having enough, it now, sure. right? Exactly. Um, and so telling these stories are important because the more people that hear it, um, the more that maybe that gets rid of um, any judgments, preconceived notions or biases that people have of certain identities that they see, right? Because regardless of what you call yourself or what you believe you are, um, people are going to look at you and they're going to, they're in their head, they already know what you are, right? They already have a definition for you. They already, um, it's like a, a snap judgment. And so we need to, so that, so you're asking me what, what is, what's causing these problems. And I think that's part of it, right? It's, it's like these uh, judgments that people are making on others that they don't even have much experience with. And so I think that the more that we um, allow ourselves to have experiences with others um, who are different than us, then that might start to um, open up, you know, these um, opportunities for us to have these dialogues and these conversations. That's a beautiful fucking response, especially in the sense that it segues to another point that I think is very important for me to try to get across, not just, again, with all the shit that I'm doing right now, but more importantly, because you right here right now can attest to this more than perhaps most can. In this idea of division, 
we would like to think that we would be able to overcome and be able to transgress all these identities and all these labels, all these roles, if you will, that we place upon each other that have been placed upon us by society long before any of us were even a fucking dirty thought inside our mommy and daddy's head, right? But on the flip side of that, there is a lot of resistance from communities that don't want people to enter their community, right? Or if people from outside, if you will, the outside of the community do enter the community, they will receive a lot of um, pushback, if you will. Uh, at one of my previous podcasts, we talked about it in terms of Taco Bell, for instance, mm-hmm. and what, def- uh, what, what, uh, what defines, if you will, authentic Mexican food, right? And the pushback in this instance is then of that of people in our position, like you, I, and Manuela as well, who are, you know, from Chicano, Mexicana, Mexica descent, who are pushing back against the quote-unquote outsiders of like Taco Bell Corporation who are trying to appropriate the taco, for instance, right? That's a silly example, but it's indicative of a larger, um, it, 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 it's indicative of a larger occurrence, uh, a larger trend that we see in society, if you will. And that is people, you know, we cling to our cultures, we cling to our groups, and when people that we don't feel belong to that group try to enter our space, if you will, we tend to react in a hostile way. Now, the reason I bring it up then is for two reasons. The first of which being, if that's the case, how are we ever going to overcome this in hopes of arriving to a more unified understanding of universality? That is to say that understanding that we are, in fact, in this together. Again, it doesn't matter if you're black, gay, white, brown, doesn't matter, right? And conversely, is it appropriate for us to do so? Like, for instance, me, obviously heavily influenced by hip hop music, which obviously, obviously originated in black culture in New York City. I'm just some fucking little Chicano kid from the hood in El Paso, man. Like, how can I possibly insert myself into that community? So I was hoping, if anything, you could give your thoughts on that. It actually started with Latinos. Um, but anyway, I'm still doing my own research on that. Um, You're talking hip hop. Yes, hip hop. Okay. Um, and there's a whole class. And anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Well, I would like to hear about the class first <laughs> before you continue. What's the class? It's, uh, gosh, I can't remember the title, but it's like Chicano hip hop. Okay. Uh, to be fair, mm-hmm. there is people in the hip hop, like the Zoo- Universal Zulu Nation, who will attest to this. They'll speak specifically, though, of the Puerto Rican influence in hip-hop yes, culture, right? Because yes. it's, it's New York City, after right. all, right? Yes. Yeah, there you go. Okay. But I'm still doing my research, so that's why I'm not going to say much about it. Cause... I got you. See? More <laughs> philosophical than, than even I, because I've just been like, yeah, what the fuck? Who cares? I'm just going to talk shit. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> um, that's a joke, by the way. So let's see. Oh, gosh. People entering other cultures, right? That's That's what you're asking me about. I think... You know, it all comes down to one thing, and and hip hop can attest to this, right? Is is respect, right? It's like, what are your intentions with another culture, another community? Like, you know, how are you benefiting from this, or you know, what are you trying to do? So, for example, I mentioned the uh, Japanese hip hop heads um, in in Tokyo and Nagoya who um, are embracing Chicano culture, and when they get interviewed and they talk about it, they say, no, we respect you know, Chicanos, we like, we love this culture. We, they're doing it out of respect and they're not profiting from it. It's not a capitalistic endeavor. It's, they're doing it because they, they've watched Chicano cinema and they're just like empowered by it. And, and the thing that they say about it is that if you know anything about Japanese culture, and I, again, I'm not trying to stereotype and I apologize if I'm not trying to offend anyone, but it can be a little bit 
conservative, especially for women in that culture, right? And so, so what Chicano culture does for them is like it gives them this empowerment, this way of sort of breaking out of their everyday standard way of living. And it gives them like a new way to envision life, to live life, to act life, right? So, so again, I think it goes back to like respect and like what are your intentions and, and why are you um, entering this culture or what is it that you're trying to do? I mean, that's a very touchy subject um, because I've entered other communities. Like I mentioned, I lived in Harlem, right? But I didn't go in with the intention to appropriate it or to to capitalize off of it you know i didn't go in there to get ideas on starting a new business that's you know selling harlem-esque um anything right and so i i came in with an open mind and open heart i wanted to just meet people make connections for no other reason than to just make those human connections to meet people to see how other people live in other places in our country um, and I, and I feel like I did it respectfully and that's why I was welcomed. And, and I, I, I did a lot of amazing things working in Harlem with some very powerful people. And, and I don't think I could have done that if I came in with bad intentions. Yeah, I mean, I could just imagine. I would love, I would love to one day be able to experience Harlem, New York, the same way that we experienced Chicago together. Because I just, just the fact that you have already created that space, you know, and then that you've already, you know, laid that foundation. Now, whether you, hopefully you still have the connections there or not is irrelevant because what's more relevant, what's more important is, is the spirit with which you approach it. And it's the spirit of openness. It's the spirit of respect, right? And I, I can't help but feel as if though we personally, often in our defense of our communities that, you know, rightfully, we are entitled to be fucking passionate about. We don't reciprocate sometimes those feelings of openness and respect. Now, before y'all motherfuckers go off and be like, yo, what the fuck? Isaac turning into one of these Theo Taco type characters? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying specifically is obviously, Elvira, being Chicano, Chicana is something that's very important to us, both of us. Yes? Yes. But at what point are we going to have to transcend, if ever, that identity in order to establish not even establish but i would want to even venture to say heal heal from the past traumas that have been inflicted on people like our ancestors right not just our ancestors but the ancestors of many peoples in this on this in this country now right because obviously you know i don't give a fuck about politics but the political atmosphere does concern me so when i see shit like all these attacks that are happening for instance with the alt-right and the rise of hate crimes in the united states of america and you know different people of different you know positionalities it it it, it, it it's it's disconcerting right and i can't help but feel as though if we continue to play this identity politics game specifically that we're never going to change that we're never going to change that this shit that's happening now is exactly what's been happening in america since the foundation of this country it's perhaps less I don't know, you know, not prominent in the sense that it, it still happens, but it's not as terrible as, you know, people being lynched, whether they're fucking black people or fucking brown people in Mexican Mexicans. It doesn't matter. We all got lynched. Right. But at what point are we going to transgress this? And is it possible if 
if, if, if we personally, as you know, the Chicanos here in this particular instance, keep rebuffing people's attempts to enter into our space, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, identity is going to exist whether or not we choose to talk about it or whether or not we choose to reveal it, right? And it's because of the dominant culture that um, has certain ideas of what certain identities mean. So for example, there was a time in our history when um, it was believed by dominant culture that being black was inferior, right? And so, so some of these identities meant uh, being lynched, like you said, you know, it's it, having a certain identity meant that you'd be killed. And it's something that still exists today, right? Like being a black man in, in, some, in some cities like we've seen has gotten them killed. Um, so we can't, um, so, so that's why we got to talk about that, right? Like what does being a black man mean to you and what does it mean to me? And how where are our similarities or our differences like um it's it's gonna be something that exists whether or not we choose to uh advance it or not be simply by the fact that um people are gonna look at you and already have a bias um and Unfortunately, that is something that has just been ingrained and passed on from generation to generation in this country, unfortunately. Like the belief of uh, darker skin is inferior to lighter skin. Um, that is not something that I'm sure dark skinned people um, invented, right? That, and so because of that, we have to talk about it um, because that ideology is what informs the systems and the institutions that we're a part of, right? Um, and so being able to identify that and to be aware of it um, is going to prepare people, especially like our students, to sort of say, hey, I know what's going on here. Like, you know, they, they need to be aware, they need to be conscious that this exists because they're going to be confronted with it whether or not they are identifying as anything, they're going to be confronted with it, namely, you know, it's, it's, it's basically for the fact of just who they are. You fuck with Game of Thrones at all? Yeah, I've seen it. A yeah. few episodes? <laughs> yes. One of, oh, not one of. My absolute favorite character is the Khaleesi, the Dragon Queen. Oh, yeah. Right? I think, I mean, she's just a fucking phenomenal character. And one of the things that I love most about her is her intent to break the wheel as it was. For her, the wheel revolves around the treatment of slaves, but all just people of lower, you know, uh, positionality, lower power structure, if you will. Right. And a lot of that resonates deeply within me because I'm starting to realize that, yo, this country's fucking changing radically. Um, people of color, quote unquote, right. Communities of color are becoming majorities, not minorities anymore. Right. And with that, we are in line to fill a lot of positions that were previously unavailable to us, right? But one of my fears, and this is what informs my previous question, is that just because we are ascending to these newfound positions of power that we'd never found ourselves in before, that I fear that it's going to lead to a false sense of advancement in society. 
And what I mean by that is, like you said previously before we went on air, that there is a lot of people who perpetuate these colonial structures that we have fought so hard, I guess you can say, for so long against, in the sense that it doesn't, I talked about it briefly in a little bit, not briefly, the whole fucking podcast, about how conservative El Paso is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to give you an example, just to get straight to the point, I, there's people who exist, Elvira, for instance, who will straight up say shit like, this is a space where no white men are allowed to enter. Because white men are traditionally descendant, uh, you know, they descend from traditional positions of power. And as such, they are automatically the oppressors just by virtue of their embodiment. And because of that, they are not allowed to enter into the space because anything that they potentially have to offer is immediately compromised. Right. So my fear then becomes I, I, I was joking and it was half joking when it comes to, you know, pushing back to people trying to take our tacos and shit. <laughs> but it's serious in the sense that, yo. At what point do we ourselves break the wheel and realize that just, you know, abusers become the abused or abused become the abusers, right? And if we ascend to the positions, we being as the people of color, ascend to the positions of power, for instance, and perpetuate the same fucking injustices that uh, preceded us or that, that, that was uh, placed upon us by the people who preceded us, honestly, what makes us any different, let alone any better? Now, for context, I'll give you an example of a video that I saw on Instagram recently. Uh, It was talking about uh, South Africa. And uh, specifically, the video was detailing how there were communities in South Africa, predominantly white communities, that were being displaced from their jobs. And because of that, they were suffering the negative ramifications of capitalism that come along with not having a job, right? And um, there were people, namely non-white people, who were celebrating this fact. They were happy about this fact, namely because it was it, it was intended, I guess, for them to be some sort of karma. It's a it's a repaying of a karmic debt. Now, I'm not saying that you know what happened. I'm not trying to justify again. I'm a fucking tío taco, Elvira. Okay, I'm trying to examine this from a fucking objective position because at the end of the day, I'm a philosopher and I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible. Obviously, South Africa, like Turtle Island, is rich, rich with colonial history, right? And what happened to the fucking South Africans is just as unjust and fucked up as what happened to the indigenous Americans of here, Turtle Island, right? But if we, as the people who were shit on by these colonial structures, turn around and do the same thing to the descendants, for instance, of the people who created these structures in the first place, seriously. How is that at all advancing as a society? And more importantly, again, how does that at all make us any better than the people we were seeking to replace in the first place? Well, I do feel that you are making some assumptions and generalizations about all people of color that are in a position no of power. <laughs> so, um, because I do know for a fact that there are some that when they do get to those positions of power, that they are, their intention is to try and change a system or an institution. But I mean, that is extremely difficult to do. Like, yes, you can make the decision to make a change in your life, but it's not always going to happen overnight. You know, it's like you have to undo in the case of our young students in their 20s, how do you undo 18 years of education? You know, I mean, that's going to take a minute. Like it took me, um, 
my bachelor's like four years to really learn my own history and to understand what Chicana meant, right? Um, and so, so one, I, I don't think that the responsibility falls just on people of color. I think that we live in a time where people should be paying attention to what's happening in our country and that anyone in a position of power should be questioning what can I do to improve our society? What can I do to contribute to democracy? Regardless of your race, your gender, your whatever, it's like if you're in a position of power, <clears throat> what are you doing to try to make life better for others? You know, you're starting to sound like one of those lefty liberal college professors people are always bashing upon. That's what it's going to take to change. Like you need to have differences of opinion. Otherwise, if you just surround yourself with people who just think like you, how are you going to grow? How oh, are you going to learn? Absolutely. You know, so you have to have, um, you know, differences of opinion. We need to have these opportunities where we can discuss our different ideas, whether we're extreme in the middle or far to the right. Um, so it doesn't just fall on the on the uh, responsibility of people of color is what I would say. Um, the thing about the ones that do, who do get to those positions of power and they just perpetuate the same system, um, I mean, I don't consider them um, to be people that are necessarily following the hood philosophy, right? Like they they obviously are not informed and, and not knowledgeable and they are embracing uh, this dominant ideology that wants to uh, perpetuate uh, you know, standards and, and, um, and they want people to be, um, subjugated and oppressed. Like, you know, it's, yes, it, people of color can be in those positions, but they obviously are just being, um, benefiting from it and, um, uh, and don't, and, and that's just a different politic, right? And to me, that's capitalistic ideology. Um, it's about them and, and their success. Um, as far as spaces and, and people entering certain spaces, again, it really depends on what space you're talking about, right? Like if there's a group of people, especially like people of color, and, and they need their own safe space to be able to talk about things, it's their right to say there's certain people that we don't want to enter this space right now because they remind us of our wounds. They, they re-traumatize us when we have to deal with them or they're not coming with us to us with the open heart or positive intentions. So, I mean, it depends on what space you're talking about, but I think that people have a, a right to create certain spaces that are meant for just certain people. And, and if they need that space to be able to um, talk about whatever issues in an open, safe manner, then, then that's what they need. And we can't um, say, oh, they're being racist or sexist or whatever. It's like, no, they're just, they're trying to heal and we need to respect that. Absolutely. Fucking absolutely agree with you. And the reason I bring it up is because prior, again, prior to going on air, we had a discussion about identity politics and the role that they can potentially play, or if any at all, uh, in helping us overcome uh, our current situation, I guess you could say. Um, and specifically, what I was trying to tell you is that me personally, I feel as though a lot of the identity politics are being used as somewhat of a, it's kind of like a shortcut to try to overcome a larger problem. 
and then you 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 rebutted by you know referencing despite the seeming trivial nature of some identity politics how they still play an important role and i was hoping you can elaborate that up further for you know now that we're recording so for example i mentioned my father was a marine and but i don't know if i mentioned about him going into diners um he you know when he was a marine and, and came to el paso and and they would pull up to a diner to eat in full uniform um, because of his identity politic, right? Not not one that he verbalized, one that other people saw. One that he embodied. Yes. Because of that, he was told you need to enter the diner through the back if you want to eat. If this you is someone get who fed. served the country. The yes, United. a Marine, a United States citizen, Mexican-American from El Paso, Texas, um, went to the Korean War. You know what I mean? And so... It's important for me to have learned that growing up. And it's important for me to teach that to my students. Like, look, you may not want to align yourself with a certain identity or see yourself in a certain identity. It doesn't matter. It's how other people are going to judge you and see you. And I want my students to be prepared for that. Um, they need to know that that's going to happen. And, and they need to know what people before them, our, our ancestors, you know, who, ha who went through the same thing, how they reacted so that we can learn from those lessons. So regardless of you saying, like, this is my identity, these are my politics, people are going to be politicizing your identity, whether you like it or not. <laughs> And you need to be prepared for that. And, and we need to honor um, our ancestors and, and people before us like who, who died trying to um, defend who they are. You know, you and I are in a privileged position where we're going, we're in a doctorate program. There was a time when you would not see people like us in a graduate school or even a college or even a community college. And so we can't forget that. And it's because of people's identity politics from the 70s and even before that, it's because of them that we are where we are today. And, and we have to teach that history and we have to prepare our students to be ready to be dealt with that in the future because there are many places in this country where um, that is very much still alive. There's no doubt about that, especially if you're here in El Paso. All you got to do is fucking drive two miles or two rather two hours in any direction and you'll encounter it immediately. Right. Um, we occupy a very special place, uh, obviously, our, and, you know, our role as, you know, professors, but also PhD students, but also in the city that we live in, right. El Paso being predominantly, uh, you know, filled with people of Mexican descent. Right. Um, and yet to segue, I guess, to the final point that we could talk about today, because I try to keep these bad boys at about an hour. And unfortunately fucking time flies when you're having fun, man, we're almost there. But despite the fact that El Paso is predominantly of Mexica descent, we do not learn a lot about our history, right? And I'm not going to set this up in an elaborate way because, again, we're running low on time. But we did have a great conversation about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And um, I was hoping you could elaborate upon that a little bit further, specifically in terms of why it's important for people to get in, con get, get in touch with their identity and the role that it can potentially play in helping us overcome this, you know, fucking pattern of behavior of people just turning around and shitting on one another once they get into a position of power. Yes. 
So one thing that's important to know about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and I'm not a historian, and I'm just going to give you the quick, brief. She's not a historian, but she does teach a little bit of Chicano studies. I'm a filmmaker, and so we're trained to tell our stories in 60 to 90 minutes, right? So it's the brief summation of what happened. Also, Um, Google is your best friend. Yes. So after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, what that treaty promised to the Mexicans that stayed in the annexed territory of the new United States, they promised that they could keep their culture, their language, and their land. Um, and, and so all of a sudden, uh, these officials representing the United States government came up to pe- Mexicans' houses and said, show us your papers. Like, how do we know that you own this land? And the people were like, well, I've been living here all my life. I inherited this land from my parents and their grandparents. and um, and and then the government said to them, well, then you need to show up to court and prove that this is your land. Um, so they would. They would show up to court. But court, guess what, is now in English. And so they could not defend themselves in a language that was not native to them. All of a sudden, the court systems are, are now in English. Um, and so those that's an example of people who were in power, who changed the system into English and made people under this system come and have to defend themselves, right? That's like a concrete example of what can happen in a negative sense. Um, And so that's important to learn because we had a rich history and and rich territories um, and Texas was Mexico and, and a lot of people don't, know that and they don't realize how much wealth we actually had and how powerful we were um and 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 the reason why we're divided now the reason why we're you know chicano on one side and and mexican on the other is because overnight a fence was built between our one community and and that created identity politics right all of a sudden we have to start showing paperwork and proving where we're from. And and if you don't have the correct paperwork, then that's going to subjugate you even further. And so that's creating more division, right? Because it's like, you know, I got my paperwork. I don't know about you. You know, I'm I'm good over here and I'm benefiting from that. Um, but if but if we look back a little bit further, we realize that that division was not something we chose you know that was a, a, a division that was just brought upon us and and so I think that that's something important to to know because I think it affects your thinking moving forward absolutely man I could not have fucking put it any better myself and the reason I'm so I have to just keep fucking bringing it up is because one of my biggest you know goals especially my pedagogic goals is to get my students to understand, not just my students anymore, but anybody who's listening to this podcast, the role that these fucking institutional forces play in our lives, man. And there is no question that, you know, school, day schools, if you will, is very much one of these institutional forces. Um, These schools that are funded by the government, the same government that created the fucking papers that created the division between a Mexican and a a Chicano person, for instance, right? And ultimately for my intents at least now is to get them to understand not just why, how these institutional forces affect them, but more importantly, more importantly is how these institutional forces themselves and the people at least who are manipulating them are responsible for much of the division that we think exists between us. Right. 
another conversation that we were having before we went on air was how, in, for, for example, many of the identities that are created now were created by fucking white people, dude. At the white people who created this country, for instance, right? Uh, specifically because they wanted to delineate who was an American citizen and who wasn't. So one of my biggest pushbacks against identity politics then is because in this quest to be free, how can we ever be free, if you will? How, can we, how, how are we ever going to be free if we're using the master's tools, for instance, right? How are we ever going to be free if we keep using the quote-unquote master's delineations of what a, Mexica, what a Mexican person is and what a Chicano person is, what a gay person is, what a straight person is, et cetera, right? Um, so in that respect, I guess the reason it's so... It's, 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 it's been a fundamental you know, element in all of my podcasts is because, again, the notion of trying to establish a universality, the realization that, again, we are all in this together, right? And in order to be able to do so, it, it involves a lot of uncomfortable conversations, especially those that make us realize that much of the differences that we believe that we hold, aren't, they're not even fucking real, man. They're just, they're just made up. And if we can just understand that one simple fact and start to work to overcome them, then maybe, if at all possible, we can work to at least not break, but maybe deconstruct the wheel at all. Piece by piece, every little bit counts, right? You're asking me for solutions for how to save Complex this world. Problems. And I don't know if I can do that in a minute. Um, uh, you have, we have more than an hour, <laughs> right? It's just, you know, let's keep going. These I mean, are hard, I'll, conversations, hard conversations. You know, and, and the thing is, the thing about universality is that there is no one glove fits all. Like, you know, if, if we're really trying to be universal, then we have to take a little bit of everyone and, and take those considerations into the design of whatever system or structure or community we want to create. Like you can't just design something from one perspective and expect it to work for everybody. Absolutely. You know, so, so in order to be universal, we do have to pay attention to every individual's identity politics um, because that's what's going to make the, the whole work, right? And, and, and that's why things, maybe the systems that we're under right now aren't working because they're trying to push a standard way of thinking, of, of being, um, and what works for one dominant culture is not necessarily going to work for, for me or people who are like me because we're raised different. You know, we were taught different values. We, we have a different culture. We have a different way of speaking. We're multilingual. We, you know, and so if those aren't, those aspects of me and I'm part of this community are not taken into consideration, then you are not being universal. Um, so you can't just, um, create this universal where, okay, let's just all agree to speak English. You know, it's like, well, why, why are we limiting ourselves? You know, why can't we speak more languages? What, what's wrong with learning more languages? You know, why, why only English? If we just want to speak one language, well then let's pick one or let's invent one, you know, but why does it have to be English? And who's, who's trying to push that ideology? Who's, whose idea is that and why, you know? So, that's what I think about universal design. <laughs> it's like there's nothing that's going to be universal unless we design it carefully uh, with everyone in mind. 
I mean, there's really no other better way to end this podcast than with that beautifully, elo- that just eloquently stated thought. Uh, one thing I will say, though, is shout out to motherfucking Burzum and all the black metal bands from fucking Norway and Nor- uh, Finland and all that kind of shit. Because you know what? Y'all might be people of European descent and I might be a Chicano man. But guess what? I don't give a fuck. I love me some melodic death metal, some black metal. I love all that kind of shit. And I'm thankful that I can do so in a way that hopefully respects their culture, even the ones who are Nazis. Right. Um, and let it be known that, man, if we can agree with something as similar as music that we could possibly get along with other stuff as well. Right. So um, with that in mind, I cannot end this podcast, however, without saying that if you want to follow me on social media, please feel more than free to do so. I'm only fucking with Instagram at this point, man. I had the Facebook. I still have the Facebook. I'll post occasionally. But realistically, I'm mostly on Instagram now. It's ice nice underscore el profe. You can find me there posting all kinds of shit all the time, including many of the excerpts from this video today. And Elvira, I don't know, perhaps you want to share anywhere or anything that you want to, you know, leave our listeners with. Sure. Um, please visit dukescomics.com. D-U-K-E-S comics, C-O-M-I-C-S dot com. And you'll learn more about uh, Ronnie Dukes and myself and the books, the comic books that we're trying to create. Um, and we post news about, you know, all the comic cons that we've been to and and what we're planning for the future. And I do have a Twitter, but, you know, it's more like an academic thing. So I'm not even going to. But Elvira C. Dukes, if you're interested. She's an up and coming scholar, dog. Don't fucking sleep. I'm telling you right now, <laughs> Elvira. Thank you again. It took us fucking forever, but we finally got it done. So I hope y'all enjoyed it. And if you didn't, too bad, bro. It's just, this is, it is what it is. All right. And if you did, thank you for continuing to support and ride along with us. I have so many more conversations to keep coming. Hopefully more with Elvira in the future. Yes. And I, I thank, thank you. you for, you know, thank you. The rest of y'all. Peace. <laughs>